From the very beginning of time, throughout the biblical record, and on into the writings of the early church fathers, we encounter the idea of two ways that we can choose to live our lives. Throughout church history, this has always been the foundation of our faith. From the beginning of time, however, there's always been a counter-voice, either denying or downplaying the distinction of these two ways. And in today's world, this distinction has become so blurred that to even mention it is to reap ridicule. As Isaiah prophesied, the day has come where what is good is called evil and what is evil is called good. So what are these two ways? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined, as usual today, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're going to look today at Psalm 1, primarily. But behind this wonderful opening psalm to the Psalter is this idea of the two ways that we are called to choose between. There's one way and there's another. And as I mentioned in the opening, this has been the common presumption, not just of the Christian faith, but of most religions, that there's a right way and a wrong way. But in our world today, this has been clouded. We all know this. And so that even in our culture, it's sometimes hard to figure out what is the right way or the wrong way. I would argue that in our conscience, we know what is right and wrong, and that the way that is right and wrong are presumed behind this wonderful psalm that we'll look at. We'll also look at how this idea is carried on throughout Scripture. But first, I'm going to welcome Dr. Howell to the program. And Ken, what I'd like to do is I've introduced this idea, but let me throw it back over to you to encourage you to talk more about this idea of the two ways. Well, Marcus, uh, the, the you, you put out so beautifully there the challenge that's before us today because, as you said, the way of goodness, the way of righteousness, the way of holiness has been so blurred and misunderstood within our culture that um, it's difficult for people to find that. Um, and exactly as, as you quoted from, from Isaiah, we find that not only outside the church, but we find it inside the church. Uh, in the sense that both the Catholic Church and in the Christian world in general, with many churches that have, face, in effect, abandoned a classic Christian morality, um, this 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 text, Psalm one, in the background from the Old Testament, and then the, you might say what it leads to in the New, um, really challenges us again to see that there is a distinct way that leads to goodness and holiness and life. And then there's another way, if we make a choice, to to go down the road to perdition. Um, so I'm so glad that we're discussing this because this um, sort of frames our life together as Christians. Ken, throughout the history of the church has been the foundation of this idea. And it's almost an absurd statement. It's obvious that it is. Yet, it seems to me that to some extent, the question of what constitutes the right way versus the wrong way is really the main issue that has led to the divisions in the church throughout these 2,000 years. Even if we go back to the Reformation, the issues that divided one group of Christians from another was essentially what constitutes 
the right way. What does the right weight include and what it doesn't include? What is required, what isn't required? And also what changes in our life living by the right way uh, uh, includes? Uh, would you say that's true, Ken? Oh, yes, absolutely. The, um, you know, the opening verse of Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man or the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners but he's, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And sometimes in our in a Western context, we misunderstand that law, this translates the Hebrew word Torah. And Torah really has a wider meaning. It means both the things that were laid down in the Old Testament scriptures, but it also means all the instruction that was done verbally uh, by the leaders and by the priests and others in ancient Israel. But what it clearly says to us is that the way that we know uh, what is the way of goodness, uh, the way of life, the way that leads to eternal life, is the way that's in the Torah of God, that is in listening to what God's instruction to us is. Uh, St. Augustine, in I think it's in Book 10 of the Confessions, he has this beautiful statement that your best servant is not he who wants to, who wants to hear from you what he wants, but who wants what he hears from you. And so God, in his instructions to us, is giving us the way of life. As he said to, to Joshua, choose, or Joshua, reflecting the Lord, says, Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. There's a way that leads to life. There's a way that leads to death. So to get greater clarity upon that is to uh, is to be take the first step toward um, getting closer to God. And you're right, Christians have uh, differed considerably on that as to exactly how we are to understand that instruction from God. Our Lord said, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard." that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The two ways. And so behind the teaching of our Lord, he assumes that his Jewish audience know the two ways. And so you've, you've uh, quoted a bit from the psalm. Ken, let me read first verses 1 through 3 of the psalm, which, um, well, let me read the whole psalm. It won't take that long. And then I'd like you to, to, to uh, you know, deepen it, open it up for our audience, uh, to, to see it as a foundation, as an expression of the foundation, which really is the foundation for the faith that we now have 2,000 years later. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Boy, I love to hear you read that psalm. You know, I memorized this psalm years ago uh, <laughs> as a young man. And um, as I reread it again, it, it 
it reverberates uh, the goodness of God in giving us, instructing us in his law. You and I both have, in different capacities, been teachers through the years. And you know how much uh, students really appreciate when you share with them um, instruction and truth. They really seem to warm up to that. Hey, Ken, well, you know, I, I was going to say, you know that in the liturgy and in the liturgy of the hours that psalms are are picked out of the 150 psalms and placed according to season, according to morning and night, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the four-week psalter that we use in Liturgy of the Hours. And so sometimes we don't always get the continuity of the psalms in the 150 psalms as presented in the canon. But Ken, would you say that there indeed in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit is the importance of the placement of this psalm as the beginning of the psalter? Well, all, all, all students of the Psalms, uh, and you see this in modern commentaries, they they very clearly all agree that there's a reason why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. In other words, it's playing, it, the whole Psalter is to be understood as a, a laying out, a, a portrayal of the two ways, the way that leads to blessing and righteousness and goodness, or the way that leads to wickedness and, and to death. So um, absolutely, the, the, the first psalm is there for a reason. It's there as a warning, and it's there as an encouragement, so that whoever meditates upon these psalms or delights in them, as it says in verse 2, uh, is a person who over time is going to um, imbibe the wonderful teachings that lead to virtue and goodness. The opening word that we have in our English is blessed. Mm-hmm. You're a, um, a linguist, Ken. Is there, do you have a preference over blessed versus happy, which is often the translation? Yeah, in, in Hebrew, this is a, a beautiful poem. It begins, And I could go on and on with that. But the word blessed is first in Hebrew as well. Um, and it does mean happy, but it means so much more than that because uh, of what you mentioned earlier about our uh, lack of ability to really understand what true happiness is. Uh, you know, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans as well uh, used the word beatitude um, to speak about what it means to live a good life. And this was before uh, Christ came into the world, before they ever knew about Christianity. But they had a sense that everyone desired to be happy. Well, our modern word happy has been somewhat, uh, you might say, uh, it's become somewhat anemic because of the associations that we have with it. But what this psalm is saying is that there's an objective way that leads to happiness. It's a way that does not stand in, it does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It does not stand in the way of sinners. But the focus of the man or the woman who wants to live that happy and blessed life is to delight in the Torah of God, to to surround himself with that, meditating upon it, musing on it day and night. It, it seems to me, Ken, that also the difference between happy and blessed. When I think of the word happy, the and again, you're a linguist, so the the the, the root of happy is like the root of happenstance. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. happy it can be the result of what I've got or what I did or what didn't happen to me. 
Whereas mm-hmm. to me, the word blessed seems to carry the assumption that the source of this positive result in my life is God, that mm-hmm. that uh, it's fed from God. We, we receive this grace, we receive this result from the hands of providence as opposed to merely because of what I did or didn't do. What I did or didn't do is important in the equation. But to me, blessed always came that. It's like why I like blessed in the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus. Yeah. That it, it, it's something, and to me, that seems to be the connection between the idea that this man who was blessed in verse 3 is like a tree planted by the streams of water. In other words, the source of the change in his life is like the graces that bubble up from the generosity of God. Yeah, and perhaps that's the reason why Jesus uses the same metaphor in John chapter 7 when he speaks about that the um, that it, out of out of the man's belly, out of his inner, <clears throat> excuse me, his inner core, he will flow over into eternal life. And speaking, he, and then John comments that he was speaking about the Holy Spirit, which they had not yet received. Uh, in other words, God's presence is like this refreshing stream, that when it comes into our lives, it yields its fruit in its season and. <clears throat> People have paid attention, I think, rightly to this phrase, and it yields its fruit in its time, in its season. In other words, we can live a life that is blessed even in the midst of trial and tribulation because we know that in the right time, God will bring the fruit of that uh, in our lives and in the lives of others. And this is why our Lord in, say, Matthew 11 counsels perseverance in prayer because that prayer is so essential to to persevere with God when we don't see the results with the confidence that in time in its right season God will bring about the results of our prayers it sounds like your puppy didn't like that uh, Ken in the background <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm it seems to me an important clarification needs to be made in this whole song because there have been what we would call health and wealth gospel folk that want to make a direct connect in our lives between if you do good, you're going to get blessed. If you do bad, you're not going to get blessed. If you do good, you're going to get wealthy, you're going to get healthy. Um, That a, a, a person, the more he commits his life in service to the Lord, he's not going to experience suffering. Um, and if on the other hand, if you turn your eye away from God, if you turn it on to yourself, your life is going to be full of failure. And the truth is, that is not what the psalmist is saying here. In the con- yeah. he's, look, he's looking at a bigger picture because yes, he's he talking is. about judgment. He's talking about standing before God. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the, those health and wealth preachers, uh, I, I think they forget two crucial things um, that are the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One is that in the Old Testament dispensation, under the covenant before Christ, the blessings of Israel was tied to the land because they were given a specific land, a piece of territory, a real estate, as it were, in which to live as the people of God. Now, that real estate uh, that they lived in was the promised land. It was God's plan. God would bless that in their obedience. 
But that's different than in the New Testament, where now the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, are spread throughout every country in the land. So it's not a specific piece of real estate now that it yields those blessings. Those blessings are of a different nature. Now, they're blessings, but they're not, they're not um, material blessings in the same way. And the second thing they forget is that if you read, if you study the New Testament very carefully, there is what we might say an, an eschatology to the New Testament. And that is to say that New Testament, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that in previous times God spoke to us in many ways and in, and in various, uh, various uh, you know, servants, but now he's spoken to us finally in his Son. In other words, we're living in the last moment of God's dealing with redemptive history since the coming of God, uh, Christ into the world, to the second coming. We're, we're, we're in that last stage, and that last stage, being the Messianic era, is an era that takes on a different character than what Israel had before. Where you see this very clearly, you pointed to it earlier when you spoke of the Beatitudes, because Jesus, of course, uses the word blessed there, but who's blessed? It's ble those are blessed that are poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's those who are meek. It's those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness and merciful. In other words, the, the blessings of God that were promised to Israel in the Old Testament are now realized in the church, and that is in every member of the church, but not always in material ways. Talk a little bit more about the wicked. In other words, in this, he gives the wicked... Yeah. as a description of people without details. Um, well, and he, he, he begins, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Yeah. I, it, there's two possible meanings here. One, of course, is that these is talking about non-Jews, those, those are pagans outside the people of God, Israel. But I think that certainly included, and we see this in, in many other texts of the of the Psalter, that the wicked are also those in Israel who are not following the way of God. And all you have to do is read the history of Israel in in, in the first second Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles to realize how few times the the kings and the leaders of Israel were really following uh the way of the Lord. Um I mean, you could give you a number of examples, but one of them is just the time of Josiah, which is the time of Jeremiah the prophet in the um, in the seventh century B.C. Josiah institutes a reform, and what happened before that was that his predecessor Manasseh had had set up all kinds of pagan idols. It even says this about Solomon toward the end of his life that he set up all these high places of pagan gods in Jerusalem. That man who was a young man. Was, was depending upon the wisdom of God, turned away from God toward the end of his life. So the wicked are those who are the flesh and blood descendants of Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, but who have in their hearts turned away from God. Um, just as a bit of a side note to, to illustrate this, um, you know, when we think of Jewish people today, we think of people that are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and they self-identify as Jew. But if you talk to Orthodox Jews, at least some of them, 
that I've talked to, and they will say, well, well, secular Jews, people that, Jews that are Jews in, in their genetics, but don't believe in God, don't practice the Torah, they're not real Jews. In other words, they are going back to the re- the religious content of the Old Testament. So the wicked are those, when he, when he gives this warning about not following in the, the counsel of the wicked, or standing in the way of sinners, these are people who are dead set against God, but are nevertheless living within the boundaries of the people of God. You know, another psalm that brings us out, Ken, is, I think, fascinating uh, in the sense that in the Catholic Church, the Liturgy of the Hours is a requirement for all priests and religious to pray every day. And the minimum is the morning and evening prayer, which includes psalms and a variety of readings from Scripture as well as prayers and hymns. But every day begins with something called the Invitatory, which generally includes Psalm 95, which is a beautiful psalm calling us to worship. But people sometimes wonder, well, it's a, kind of a strange psalm to make every priest and bishop and cardinal and pope and nun to pray every single morning in the sense that there's a part of it that ends this way. So think of this. Every priest, every cardinal, bishop, pope, nun, monk, every morning prays, Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice, harden not your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in heart, and they do not regard my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger that they should not enter my rest. It's a daily warning to Christians about the temptation to be drawn to the counsel of the wicked. And it's a constant temptation you see throughout history. You know, the the rule of St. Benedict, which was done in the fifth, uh, late 5th century, um, begins with the words very similar to this. And the word it begins with is hearken, or esculta in Latin, uh, listen, pay attention very carefully, because if you don't, you may end up like those of Meribah and those at Massa, um, because our life as Christians is a constant life of obedience and love of God. It's a daily experience. It's not well. I've been saved and everything is okay. No, the 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 Psalms and the whole Scriptures are calling us to daily conversion and penance. This uh, reference description of the wicked, like chaff. The psalmist is speaking about the judgment. And I've got a small farm. I hate to even admit it because I'm the worst farmer that ever lived. But (laughs) this idea of the chaff is you're trying to separate the the grain that is uh, nutritious, and in my case, that I want to feed to my livestock, versus the junk that has no nutritional value. And so how do you separate the two? In the old days, they would take a, a shovel full of grain and freshly harvested and throw it up in the air, and then the chaff would have no weight to it, and the wind would blow it away, and the more nutritious, valuable would fall. And this whole image that 
this agrarian image that the psalmist used is the exact agrarian images that our Lord Jesus uses in so many of his parables of the kingdom when he talks about the separation, the sheep from the goats. Uh, again, he uses the, the, the wheat and the chaff, uh, the good and the bad fish. He, he uses the separation of that which is valuable in the eyes of God and that which has denigrated itself and made itself unnutritious using a grain image through the choices they make in life. Yeah, and that, that choice is uh, obviously very present. And, and it's interesting how the psalm speaks about how, how does one become one of these wicked? You're, you're, to use modern Catholic terms, okay, so you're baptized into the church. You're um, perhaps maybe even ordained. Uh, how do you turn away from God? Well, he gives us actually the answer in verse 1. Because he says, blessed are the, is the man, or blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And if you think about those three verbs, walk, stand, and sit, there's a gradual coming to rest in wickedness. Yeah. So you see, if you, if you constantly, he's not talking about the fact that the, Every, a good-hearted person like, like David who sinned grievously against God, but nevertheless, he was repentant for what he did. Um, just to put some modern tones on this, I, I went to confession uh, yesterday, actually, and as I was confessing my sin, I was uh, feeling pretty down about it. And the priest said to me, he said, but, but don't be discouraged because the fact that you've come here and confessed your sins shows that God is working in your heart. If you did not feel compunction or contrition about that sin, you wouldn't be here. And this is what he means by the wicked is the difference. There's someone like David who did wicked things, but he's not the wicked because he repented. He turned back to God. Whereas those that are the wicked being described here are those that have gradually, they started walking in the counsel of the wicked, then they started standing in the way of sinners, and then they finally sat in the seat of scoffers. It seems that this is a good background to understanding what John writes later in his first letter when he talks about Christians do not sin or cannot sin. If they love God, they don't sin. Behind that is not merely a one-time thing, but a lifestyle, a continuing in sin, a choosing to, as you said, walk and then stand and then sit and then dwell in the presence of sinners. We're going to take a break, Ken. And we'll come back and explore how this idea is carried out throughout the early church fathers. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program. I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740 450 1175. Thank you. 
time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes former Lutheran Rick Fee to the show. Listen to his testimony as he shares his journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Hull. And we're looking at this idea of the two ways, and this could be many hours of discussion, Ken, as you know. Uh, uh, We see it uh, posited by the psalmist, and he's not defining something new. The psalmist is presuming that his hearers already know what he's talking about, so he's able to build on their, their knowledge, their conscience, on what it means to be right with God or to be wicked, and yet he's he's warning them because, of course, at all places throughout history, we're always living in a situation where there are the voices of those apart from God trying to pull us in that direction, and maybe never uh, before as we are here today. And, uh, you know, the media, the Internet makes these voices much more powerful in our lives to pull us into the counsel of the wicked. We could certainly jump from Psalm into Sirach uh, and see how that's brought forth. We could go into the words of our Lord Jesus. But maybe, Ken, as we were talking during the break, why don't we look at a paragraph in the first letter of John and to hear the very bold statements of John, words which are not always easily understood, and how you apply them. I remember struggling with how to preach these to my Presbyterian congregation. Um, but Ken, what I'd like to do is I'll read these from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, and then, if you would, Ken, reflect on how these are carrying out the two ways as expressed in Psalm 1. So John writes, Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous, as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this it may be seen who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not do right is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. Yeah, the uh, this is a very um, pungent passage in that in that it it leads us at least initially to think that anyone who sins is not born of God. Um, but you know, it, it certainly cannot mean uh, that um, that Christians are without sin. Because if you look back in the beginning of the chapter, or excuse me, the beginning of the little letter, at the very beginning in chapter 1 and verse 9, he says that, or verse 8, he says, If we say that we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yep. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all lawlessness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So what he's talking about in chapter 3 cannot be the committing of sins. What he must be talking about something different. And I think the key here resides perhaps in two things. If you look at verse 9, I think the translation you read said, everyone who's born of God does not commit sin. Um, You could translate this, everyone who is born of God does not practice sin because his seed abides in him. In other words, he's talking about a life of habitual uh, rebellion against God, just as the psalmist was in mm-hmm. Psalm 1. He's not talking about the sinner, the, the man or, who loves God and yet falls into sin. He's talking about the one who is deeply committed to a life of sin and rebellion. Now, I think it's significant that what what John says here in this text is that we know that the Son of God was manifested to destroy sin, to, to take away sin, and that he was manifested in verse uh, 7, it says, or verse, yeah, verse 8, that the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, salvation is not just being forgiven uh, for the legal uh, results of our sin. Namely, we're worthy of condemnation, um, and so God forgives us. But God's purpose is to destroy the works of the devil within us. And that means a progressive sanctification that's going on in our lives. I think you point this out in, in a recent book that you've done, which I liked a lot, um, that book called what, what Must I Do to Be Saved? Yeah. Um, you point out that salvation is more than just individual trust in Jesus. It is a being a part of the church of Jesus Christ because you're part of the people of God, just like the Israelites, an individual Israelite was a part of, of the Israel, people of Israel. But then it's also a progressive sanctification that takes place in which the the works of the devil are being destroyed within us. What he's warning us, or what John's warning us against, is the idea that we can reconcile this life of being born of God, of living in God's love, of loving one another, with unrighteousness that cannot be reconciled. We must say one yes to the one and no to the other if we are going to be God's people. Let me push you on this a little bit, my friend. Um, 1 John has long been one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, Rightly so. (laughs) I mean, it goes back to uh, when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, well, 40 years ago, when I was in my young 20s. Um, Even though I had been a a 
nominal Christian all my life, in my early 20s, by the grace of God, I experienced a life-changing surrender to Jesus by grace. And First John, early on, uh, challenged me in many ways, especially when the verse that says, he who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You know, that our life has got to be more than mere mental faith. It needs to be carried out in our lifestyle. But, now here's where I want to push you on this pat, on this book. I have found that as I came to see the beauty of Scripture, the depth of Scripture, as interpreted through the tradition and the eyes and the spirit of the church, that I've come to discover, especially through seeing a book like 1 John, through the writings of the great spiritual fathers of the church, to see that there are layers and levels of understanding mm. and that our walk with Jesus Christ is not merely, you know, we see these two ways, either in or you're out. And often as Protestants, we saw it that way. You're either in and you're out. You're either saved or you ain't saved. And once saved, always saved. That's where I came from. You're either in or you're out. Well, yet when we look at the writings of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, and we listen to contemporary spiritual writers like uh, Father Thomas Dubay, God rest his soul, we see that there's a journey, that there's a growing in this, uh, like the psalmist talks about a tree. A tree doesn't just go from a seed to a full-grown oak. There's a long, long Mm -hmm. journey of an oak that grows limbs, and some limbs fall off, and some grow back on. Some grow... You know, sometimes a storm will make a a trunk go completely crooked and then straighten up. And the reason I say this is that one of the key scriptures that I never saw before, Ken, as we talked about last week, was chapter 1, verse 2 of John, in which he says, My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. And what that opened for me is this idea, as you see in the spiritual writers, like Teresa of Avila, is that as we grow in union with Christ, by grace, we can be changed to the point where we are strengthened spiritually to sin less and less and less. That this is an expected part of our growth in Christ. Not like Luther who would have always emphasized that to the end of our life, we can never not sin, but Mm -hmm. rather that by grace, we can grow to a level of which, because of the strength we have from union with Christ, that we can more strongly resist sin to a point in our life where maybe we are almost on the edge of being sinless. Not because of our strength, but because we have more and more surrendered and surrendered to God. And that has helped me wonder whether when John is writing this, he is writing this from the level of the seventh castle of St. Teresa, Hmm. that he is writing himself from the experience of having so surrendered to Christ, so experienced by grace a rejection of the counsel of the wicked, It isn't merely he's chosen the right way and the wrong way, but that as he's grown in suffering in relationship to Christ, 
that he is seeing life in this intimacy with Christ in a way that if if we have even the littlest venial sin in our life, then we've got something very dangerous that needs to be extracted. Because to the extent we even had a little venial sin is the extent that we have turned a bit from God. We've got more growth to go. Well, I think the kind of journey and, and um, you might say the subtleties of that journey that you're talking about, which are in writers like St. Teresa of Avila, is <clears throat> very much just lies just under the surface of this letter of First John when he talks about walking in the light as he is in the light. We have varying degrees in which we perceive the light of God in our life. And the more that we become like Christ, the more that we have fellowship or participation or koinonia in him, um, the more that we are not only cleansed from the guilt of our sin, but of the desire to sin as well. You know, you mentioned uh, reading this text of 1 John in the light of the great church fathers. You know, St. Augustine, the great bishop of uh, Hippo in the early 5th century, wrote or did did tw- uh, 10, I guess you would say, call them sermons or, or commentaries or tracts on this. And it just so happens that I've been reading those lately. And he, when he's commenting about 1 John, he says the entire life of a good Christian consists of holy desire. And yet you do not see what you desire, but by desiring it, you make yourself more able to receive it when it comes, that you may be filled with what you do see. So he's talking about here that I think he's capturing the words of uh, of John by saying that um, it's what we desire that makes all the difference in the world. And if we're desiring holiness, there's going to be a definite growth in that. And St. Augustine goes on to say, so too, when God sees that you can hold little, he enlarges your desire by making it greater. He expands the mind by desire. He makes it able to hold more by enlarging it. And therefore, brothers, he says, let us increase our desire that we may be filled. So you see, uh, the, the, I think that beautifully reflects what John is saying here, is that we, as we grow in desire for God, uh, we become holier. Now, um, you probably uh, didn't expect me to say this, Marcus, but as I observed you over the years uh, as a friend, uh, I think I can, can certainly testify that you have grown in holiness to a remarkable degree and, and provide a, a great uh, example to us all as Catholic Christians of, of what we should be. Um, one final note maybe I was about say, that. If I've grown in holiness at all, it's only because my wife is dedicated to trying to make me a good man. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's both hilarious and 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 there's a serious part of it, right? Because that's their that's their goal. I mean, that's their that's their calling is to help us to be holy, and uh, and and likewise us to them as well. What is at the core, and this is what Saint Augustine says in his small commentary on the First John, is that the core, the key to holiness is always to be growing more in love, love of God and love of neighbor. And he goes on to say later on, I mean, John goes on to say, 
that how can we say we love God if we do not love our neighbor? We can't say we love God whom we cannot see if we do not love our neighbor whom we can see. So that love is really the key to growing in this purity of mind and heart. Yeah, that brings brings us to a key verse in in First John, which if we were to ask ourselves, okay, let's go back to Psalm 1 for a second, okay, which side am I on? You know, yeah, which right, path right. am I on? How do I know? I mean, I remember long ago being baptized or accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I remember all the things I've done, even today, but I also see the ways that I fail. Which path am I on? When I stand before God, as it says in Psalm 1, verse 8, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. God knows. He knows my heart. He knows my life. How do we know? Well, John says in 1 John three fourteen, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Yeah, so the yeah. measure of our journey is the extent to which we love. And love isn't a feeling. Love is the is the change of our heart and then leading to action. So as grace changes us from within. In fact, there's other verses that again, how do you know you know you know you love God? Well, do you love somebody? The fact that you love is because he loved you first. God loved you first. Yeah. That's why we're able to love. We've been changed. Which explains also the the craziness in our modern world of people who are not growing in grace or not growing close to the Lord, they've lost the ability to love and have redefined love, yes. have changed right. relationships, have wanted to, to make love modeled after their own baseness as they yeah. walk in the counsel of the wicked. It becomes the measure. Well, I, I'm so glad that you, you pointed to the fact that because part of the modern problem is this identification of love with, with just passing emotion. Um, and we, we all experience uh, passing emotions that are wrong. People have infatuations with people they shouldn't have infatuations with. Or they have desires for things, for, for riches or goods or prestige or fame, uh, that really are not going to, uh, to help them. Uh, St. Augustine, again, gives us some wisdom in this when he when he comments on 1 John 3, 3, um, which says that he who has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure, even as Christ is pure. And so St. Augustine asked the question, well, you know, what does this mean to purify oneself? And he says, who can purify us but God? Of course, he, he no one. No one can pure, make us pure but God. But he goes on to say, God does not purify you unless you are willing. So because you join your will to God, you purify yourself. In other words, it does not lie in the emotions. It lies in the consent of the will with God. And sometimes, even against our emotional desire, if we consent to what God wants us to do, there is the purification that allows us to love even more. You know, I I don't know how to really make this concrete. I, I make a claim, and but I I really do believe that over time, by the grace of God, I've I've learned to love in ways that I I never realized that I could love people 
in the way that I have come to do that. And it's not because I'm super holy or some great. It's simply because of what St. Augustine says here. It's a turning over of my will to God and of your will uh, to, to be what he wants us to be. And he transforms us. He makes us pure and allows us then to love as he loves. And I'm going to draw our attention to another text which connects with what you said, Ken, because not only did the Apostle John build on this idea of the two ways, but so did uh, St. Peter in his first letter, chapter 4, because it connects to what is love? You've grown in love, and I have, Ken, by grace, by God's mercy. We've grown even to be able to love people that we don't like. Uh, hmm. you know, and people love us who don't like us, uh, but because of their obedience to the Lord, because there's a there's an element of love, a necessary element of love, called suffering, and the yeah. the first two verses of First Peter four are Peter's way. He, he deals with it all through his letters about the the two ways, but in this he he deals with it in a unique way, which is kind of parallel to what John does, because Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. So in there he's got the, ch- the choosing in this yeah. time, in this life, before we stand before God in judgment, as we live in this time in the flesh, we are to choose by human passions or by the will of God. But that somehow, what's an important key of this, Ken, is this suffering in the flesh. Talk about the importance of suffering. Well, our Lord experienced the worst suffering of all. Um, it was the suffering of our the judgment of our sin upon him. He took the the pain of our sin, and in doing that, he releases us from the eternal guilt of that. But he does that. There's st- there, rather there there still needs to be in us the cleansing or the purification that John was talking about, namely that he purifies himself even as he is pure. Because salvation is twofold. One, it's God dealing with the guilt of our sin, but it's also dealing with the stain or the pollution that comes in our lives because of our sin. That purification is related to the cross as well. Because by drawing, by, by, by the Lord drawing us into his cross, bearing his cross within the world, whatever form of suffering he may give us, then we are purified by that. Now, we can engage in voluntary penances as well, but sometimes he sends these things into our lives. And when he does, he's not saying, I hate you. He's not saying that I I want to punish you. He's saying, I want to draw you even more deeply into Christ's sufferings in the flesh so that you can be truly pure and righteous uh, and even love in a greater way than you have before. There's a connection here, Ken, with Psalm 1, verse 3, when he says that the blessed 
is the man who is like a tree planted by the streams of water. Now, you have to choose where you're planted, where you're drawing your nourishment, from God or from the counsel of the wicked. And we're in a culture in which we're surrounded by the counsel of the wicked. And the suffering is that it means we have to pull our roots out of the soil that we have wrongly planted ourselves, whether it's our passions, our choices, uh, our convictions. If we are to walk in the way of God, that means extracting ourselves, and that often requires suffering in the flesh. Sometimes it's choosing to not be in certain relationships, uh, choosing to not have certain things in our life. That involves an aspect of of suffering, and sometimes it involves accepting loss. That's what needs to happen so that we can be open to the blessings of God. Well, that's right. In, in fact, that you, you're you're really paraphrasing something that Saint Augustine says here in this commentary as well on First John when he speaks about the fact that you, if you're already full of of one thing, you can't be filled with another. In other words, if you're full of sin, if you're full of rebellion or selfishness, then you cannot be filled with God. And he says, pour out the stuff that's keeping God out so that you can let God in. I like, I love that yeah. imagery of this, of Psalm one that you just quoted about being like a tree planted by streams. Um, you know, the difference between a mirage and a real stream, <laughs> a mirage is something we think is there, but it's not really there. The sacraments are not a mirage. The sacraments are true streams that that nourish us and allow us to be able to grow in that grace. And this is why, Marcus, uh, I really want to see people come to the church, not for triumphalism, but and to say we were right after all, but no, to say, come to these sacraments. You can be more than you think you can be. Like streams of living water. I mean, that's what we receive in the sacraments. And that's exactly why uh, we desire to share the fullness of the church with all who would listen, all who want to walk in the narrow way of Christ. Ken, we didn't get to the Didache, and next week let's do that. Let's look at chapter one of the Didache, um, one of the writings of the early church fathers, to see how he builds on this idea of the two ways. All right, Ken? Sounds great. All right, thanks, Ken, for joining us. And all of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Go to chnetwork.org to find out more about this program as well as the other things we do in the Coming Home Network. I pray this program has been an encouragement to your faith in Christ. God bless you.